All right, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. Have you ever heard of John D. Rockefeller? He was the founder of the Standard Oil Company. You may not have known he is the richest man in American history. Whether talking about then or now, he's the richest American who's ever lived. To give you some idea of how rich John D. Rockefeller was, Let's compare him with Jeff Bezos. Am I saying that name right? The Amazon guy? Jeff Bezos. Close enough? There you go. Jeff Bezos. They tell us that today Jeff Bezos of Amazon is the richest man in America alive. And that he is worth $112 billion. That's a lot of money. But by comparison, if John D. Rockefeller were still alive the money he had would amount to $409 billion. He was worth almost four times as much as Jeff Bezos. Now, I'm not promising you. One of the things that uh, some people say as Christians, that if we, if we follow the Lord, He'll make us rich. That's not necessarily true. But the truth is that if we follow the Lord, we're most likely to have all of our needs met. The great thing about John Rockefeller is that as one of the richest men in the world, he was also one of the most generous. He gave away millions of dollars and there are buildings all across America that bear, bear his name. What's interesting about this man is that even from his first paycheck until his very death, he tithed on everything he made. The story is told that at one point he thought he was dying, so he began to give away his wealth. And an amazing thing occurred. He lived through that ordeal, and he attributed his living to his generosity. He said, I lived longer because I became more generous. Now, I'm not promising you today that if you become more generous, you will live longer. But I am promising you today that if you become more generous, others will be glad you lived longer. Others will be glad you lived longer. Because you're a generous person. How do you live a life of generosity? How do you live a lifestyle of generosity? I'll be answering that question in this, my third message in the series for the generations following. Our goal, of course, is to build a new student young adult building. The new building, as you can see from the architect's plan, uh, provides adequate and relevant space for our growing student and young adult ministries. This faith-raising campaign that we're presently in is designed to grow us as a church family, both financially and numerically and spiritually. The challenge that we seek is to reach a goal of $2.1 million, and reaching that goal will require faith and sacrifice on our part. Though some have already made a commitment to this campaign, and others will be making commitments in the near days, we would ask all of our folks to make a commitment by March 31st, which is the commitment day of this particular campaign. You've been given the opportunity to grab one of these at the end of your pew. There still should be some left. If not, there's some here on the communion table. These are our anchor piece books for the generations following. And inside the book, it tells you all about the campaign. There's a little brochure that looks like this for the generations following. This brochure is a kind of a neat instrument. It has on the inside left of it, as you open it up, it has inside the idea of 13 creative ways to save some money. We'll be talking a little bit about that today, but 13 creative ways to save money. But what I really want you to pay attention to is the commitment card section of this. You'll notice that on the commitment card section of this, you have an opportunity to talk about how you would like to give, what you would like to commit to, either on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or a yearly basis for this campaign. card represents a faith commitment to God. 
Another way of saying that, of course, is that we're asking you to make a good faith commitment. None of us can control our financial futures. None of us knows how much money we'll make next year, much less for the next three years. But we can make a commitment to what we believe God wants us to do, and that's all we're asking you to do, to make a commitment to what you believe God wants you to do. And in order to help you make that commitment, we have provided on the inside fold of this commitment card a giving potential chart that you have right here. Here's what we'd like you to do. We're asking you to pray about this chart because we believe that there's a place on this chart somewhere where you will find yourself. And we're asking you to prayerfully find where you need to be on this chart and then pray to see if God would help you go up one step or two steps on this chart just to kind of help us with giving. So let's begin to answer the question, how do you live a life of generosity? The first thing you need to do is to put your wealth in perspective, number one. Put your wealth in perspective. We live in a financial world that is by no means certain. My parents lived through the Great Depression. I lived through the Great Recession. And who knows what other Eschens we may have to live through before this thing is all over. Those who are senior adults in our church worry that they will outlive their money as lifespans are lengthening, but interest rates don't seem to be going much of anywhere. Baby boomers are struggling to pay for the skyrocketing cost of health care that they are increasingly needing. Generation X is wondering how to keep their house and provide a college education for their kids. And millennials are graduating from college with an average student loan debt of over $30,000. And they're earning less than their parents did at the same time in their lives. Every generation is faced with financial instability. And yet, at the same time, we as Americans are more affluent than ever. A few years back, there was a movement in America called Occupy Wall Street. Remember that? They were basically complaining about the 1% of the wealthiest people in America. The filmmaker Michael Moore was a huge advocate of the movement until someone discovered that he was in the 1%. That was embarrassing. And it proved, of course, to us that you don't have to be Microsoft's Bill Gates or Berkshire Hathaway's Warren Buffett or Amazon's Jeff Bezos to be in the top 1%. As a matter of fact, to be in the top 1% of American wealth, you only have to make about $400,000 a year. Now, that's still a lot of money to most of us. But it's not an astronomical figure. However, and here is where perspective comes in for us, to be in the top 1% of earners in the world, all you have to make is $32,400 a year. If you want to be in the top 1% of people on the globe, all you have to make It's $32,400 per year. That means I'm looking at a lot of one percenters this morning. In fact, the vast majority of you are one percenters this morning. Congratulations. Now you know why people from outside America consider us as Americans as rich. Consider that as many as 2.8 billion of the world's 7.3 billion people live on $2 per day or less. You are much richer than you realize. We need to put our wealth in perspective. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And Paul gave us some very, very good financial advice in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where he begins in verse 7 by saying, For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Then fast forward down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides with, for us everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, that is sobering, and sound financial advice for every one of us. So, first of all, you need to get your wealth in perspective because you're wealthier than you realize. Secondly, in terms of living a lifestyle of generosity, understand that you are a steward and not an owner of wealth. Understand that you are a steward and not an owner of wealth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove themselves faithful. And in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, we have the parable of the talents. In that parable, of course, which is a story Jesus tells to help us understand spiritual truth, and He told many parables because they so illustrate spiritual truth, He told us that there was a businessman who was taking a far trip and a long trip. And He called some of His servants or employees in, and He gave them differing amounts of money. They're called talents in the parable, a talent was a denomination of money like a hundred dollar bill. And to one servant he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one, each according to their ability to make money. The first one with five talents invested his talents wisely and made five more. The one with two talents invested his talents well and made two more. But the one with one talent was apathetic. As a matter of fact, when you read what Jesus said to him, he calls him lazy. I thought he might have called him riskless because he didn't want to take a risk either. But he says, you're apathetic, you're lazy, you did not want to use the gifts that I've given you. And sometimes that's our problem. Sometimes our problem is that we don't want to use the gifts that God has given us because we are too spiritually lazy. Remember, it didn't go well for that one with the one talent. And I don't know what all weeping and gnashing the teeth means, but it don't sound good. We've got to use the talents God's given us. God wants us to do something for Him with that which He has entrusted us. And then thirdly, in terms of living a lifestyle of generosity, get your financial house in order. Get your financial house in order. The book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, has 77 verses related to money. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 23 and 24 says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. Now, you might think that he's talking only to those who own livestock right here. But that's not it at all. Notice the next words. For riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations. Riches don't last forever. So pay attention to what you have financially, or you might lose it. When I speak of getting your financial house in order, I'm talking about controlling your spending rather than having your spending control you. And the only way to do that is to have a financial plan. And of course, we call a financial plan a budget, one of our least favorite words. A budget. Think of a budget like a handle on a water faucet that allows you to turn the water on and turn the water off. A budget helps you turn the money on and turn the money off when you need to. 
Now, when thinking about turning off the money or cutting your spending, there's only one area of the five areas of a budget that you can honestly do that. Here are the five areas of budget. First of all, there's giving from the picture on the screen. There's giving, but cutting your giving won't work. You shouldn't want to cut your giving if you're giving what God has told you to give. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. So you really can't cut giving. It's not an area that you should be cutting in. Taxes. Oh, we'd like to cut our taxes. There are only two ways to cut your taxes. Neither one of them are probably going to work for you. You either cut your taxes by making less money. Now, making less money is not an attractive option to most of us. Or you cut your taxes by increasing your deductions. And to tell you the truth, if you can afford to increase your deductions, you probably don't need a budget, to be honest with you. So that's probably not going to work for you either. How about debt repayment? Maybe you can lower your payments on paying back debt. Well, the only way to cut debt repayment is to extend the term of the loan. And, of course, by doing that, you pay more money in the long run, and that's not typically the wisest way to do that. You're actually going to spend more. It's not the most cost-efficient way. You may need to do that at times, but it's not the most best way to do it. Then savings. Cutting your savings is not what you want to do either. You shouldn't cut your savings because your savings are going to fund your financial dreams and give you a financial margin against emergencies that come in your life at the very worst times. In fact, in my experience, one of the reasons people get into financial trouble is because they don't have enough savings. Lastly, the last category is living expenses. Living expenses is the only area of a budget where you can significantly cut your spending. And the good news is that it's a huge area. It covers everything from the size house you live in to the kind of car you drive to how many times you're going to go out and eat this week. Speaking of going out and eating this week, I had a rather difficult experience at a restaurant in Henry County this past Friday evening. First time it's happened in 25 years. Suzanne and I had run up to the county there to do some errands we needed to do, and I'd been fighting a nauseous feeling all day long. And then it happened, yeah. wasn't pleasant. You would have thought it was a fire drill with the people in place, you know, moving on out. It was tough. You know this stomach bug that's going around? If you hadn't had it, you will, okay? It's going around. <laughs> Enjoy it. It's going around like crazy. All the people in the restaurant, they were kind to me. Uh, they, they were so respectful. They packed our dinners up and got us out of the restaurant as quickly as they could. They were very, very kind to us, very treated us with dignity and respect the entire time. But I was thinking as I walked out the door, I bet they're thinking in their minds, the next time we see him coming, we better lock the door. And sure enough, as I turned around, they were spraying Lysol behind me. <laughs> That'll make you not go out to eat as often. And that's one step in terms of saving money. Then the fourth step in terms of living a lifestyle of generosity, be faithful in the basic biblical giving of a tithe. Be faithful in the basic biblical giving of a tithe. An organization called Empty Tomb Incorporated yearly publishes a document called The State of Church Giving that documents the decline of giving in churches since 1968. The sad thing is that giving in churches has declined since 1968 from 3.11% for most people to 2% for most people. It represents billions of dollars every year lost for ministry and missions. And at the current rate, by 2050, the average giving to churches will be 1%, so says Empty Tomb Incorporated. 2%, of course, was way below what God requires of His people. Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. 
A tithe, of course, is 10% of our income. It's the minimum standard of giving that God commands from us. And it's intrinsically fair to everybody because God doesn't require the same amount of money. He simply requires the same amount of sacrifice. For the person that makes $250,000 a year, their tithe is $25,000 a year. For the person that makes... $25,000 a year, their tithe is $2,500 a year. It's an intrinsically fair way to give, and it's fair to everybody. But when we withhold our tithes from God, He says that we're robbing Him. Can you imagine that? The audacity that God has to tell us that we're robbing Him. In Malachi, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Malachi asked the question, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, said God. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God replies, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, this whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough to receive it. I believe if all God's people were obedient to God in this area, we'd be looking for things to do with money. We'd have more money than we could figure out what to do with. The Lord would help us find a way to spend it well. But we would be looking for things to do with money because we just would have so much abundance of it. Just as surely as a curse follows those who deny God His tithe, so a blessing follows those who cheerfully and freely give God their tithe. Then fifthly, the fifth step in living a lifestyle of generosity Remember that God promises to meet your needs, not your greeds. Oh, how we remember, need to remember that. Remember that God promises to meet your needs and not your greeds. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, But my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory through Christ Jesus our Lord. We get our needs and our greeds confused a lot, don't we? And funding all that greed is very expensive. A number of signs that tell us in America that we're very greedy people First is the fact that the average American owes $10,000 in credit card debt. Another indication is that since 2001, the number of storage facilities in America has doubled to over 58,000, while the U.S. population went only up only 11%. We now have over 2.3 billion square feet of available space to stash our ever-growing piles of stuff that we can't afford and don't need. Suzanne and I have discovered as we're trying to move out to the pond, that we have all kinds of piles of stuff. For some reason, we could afford it, but we certainly don't need it. And we're trying to find people who will take it. Goodwill's a good place. Salvation Army's a good place. The sixth step in living a lifestyle of generosity, eliminate debt as quickly as possible. Eliminate debt as quickly as possible. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor and the borrowers slave to the lender tells us something about debt, that it enslaves us. There's one particular scripture in the ever-practical book of Proverbs that communicates well the reason that debt can be a trap. That verse is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25. And the best paraphrase I've ever heard of it is this, it is a trap for someone to go into debt without giving due consideration as to how they're going to pay it back. It's a trap to go into debt without giving due consideration as to how you're going to pay it back. Now, on one occasion, the infamous outlaw Jesse James and his gang sought shelter and refuge and rest at a lonely farmhouse. The woman who gave them that food that she had, what little she had, and she apologized for not being able to feed them better. She was a widow and deeply in debt. She was even 
then waiting for the debt collector to visit her to demand his $1,400, which she owed to him but could not possibly pay to him. Jesse James had the spoils of a, one of his bank robberies with him, and so he gave the astonished woman enough money to pay off her debt, telling her to make sure she got a receipt from the debt collector. Then he and his gang withdrew to watch the road leading to the farmhouse. Along came the debt collector looking very grim. A short while later, he emerged from the farm looking altogether more pleased with himself. Jesse James and his men rode up, recovered their $1,400, then rode off. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice if someone paid our debts that way? I'm afraid Jesse James is gone, folks, long gone. And you're going to have to take care of that yourself. And that's what makes debt such a difficult thing. The seventh step is living a lifestyle of generosity is by disciplining your wants, you can save more than you spend. By disciplining your wants, you can save more than you spend. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Think of those words. When you think about how you're going to spend your money, when you plan how you're going to spend your money, then you will spend it better. But everyone who spends money hastily comes to poverty. You've experienced that. I've experienced that. We saw something. We impulsively bought it. And then a day or two later, we wish we hadn't bought it. You've got to discipline your wants or your wants will lead you to financial ruin. My father used to say to me, stay out of them gun stores, son. Stay out of them gun stores. He didn't do it. I hadn't done it either. What he thought was, if you stay out of gun stores, you won't be buying guns. And that was somewhat true in his day. But the truth is, some of you fellas need to amen me me on this. (laughs) We'll get it right in a minute. (laughs) Some of you fellas need to amen me on this. You can buy guns from any store in the world now with the internet. You get to shop everywhere, shop stores all over the world. And since the 1970s, I have always wanted me a Browning Bicentennial B-78 rifle and caliber 4570 government. That's a beautiful gun, ain't it? Oh, that's a good-looking gun. It really is. Beautiful stock on it. I'd show you closer-up pictures, but I don't want you to covet it. But, uh, you know, I... Really nice gun. But, you know... Never mind the fact, of course, that it's way too much gun to shoot anything with around here. Never mind the fact that it's such a powerful round that it would knock you on your backside if you did shoot it. Never mind the fact, of course, that if you ever shot it, you would ruin half the value of it. You'd lose half the value of it because everybody wants one of those unfired. I still want one. I've got to have one. I've got to have a Browning B-78. But you know what? My wife tells me I'm not going to get one. Maybe you could take a collection for me to get one, but she ain't giving a dime. (laughs) She says, I need to discipline myself. I don't need that. I got more than I need already. How many guns can you shoot at one time? Anyway, you know, sorry, fellas. But, uh, you know, you got to deny yourself on occasion. In fact, there's something spiritually uplifting about denying ourselves. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. There's something spiritually uplifting about denying ourselves. Something that causes us to grow. 
by denying ourselves. Then lastly, in terms of living a lifestyle of generosity, by saving more than you spend, you'll have money to invest in kingdom ventures. By saving more than you spend, you'll have money to invest in kingdom ventures. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. A young man came out of the Ozark Mountains in his early manhood with the firm purpose of making himself rich. A fortune in gold is what he was looking for. He found it. Gold became his God, and putting it first, he won it. He came to be worth millions. But the crash of 1929 came the Great Depression, and he was reduced to utter poverty, and his reason tottered along with his mind and his fortune. One day a policeman found him on Eads Bridge in St. Louis, gazing down at the waters of the Mississippi River. He ordered the man to move on. The man said, leave me alone. I'm trying to think. There is something better than gold in this world, but I have forgotten what it is. The police officer took him to an insane asylum, believing that anyone who could not figure out what was better than gold must be losing their mind. Friend, don't you ever forget that God is better than gold? The song, I'd rather have Jesus, says it well. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand. Put your hope in God and you will never be disappointed. Store up treasures in heaven and they will last for all eternity. He is no fool to give up that which He cannot keep in order to gain that which He cannot lose. Think about that as we pray. Father, thank You for this time that You've given us today. Help us, Lord, to love You far more than we love things. You designed us, Lord, to love people and to love You and to use things. But, Father, so often we use people to get the things we want, things we love. Forgive us for that. And help us, Father, to see the true meaning and purpose of life. The true end of life and its destination is to be with You. Father, no matter how many toys we gather together during our short lifetimes, we lose them all the day we die. And so only what we can take with us to eternity is important. Help us, Father, to place our hearts in Your hands and to love what You love and to make the decisions today that You want us to make. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.